0: So, who watched some of the Olympics that were on a few weeks ago? Yeah, we watched a whole lot of hours of the Olympics. If you watch the Olympics, you know who this is. But if you don't, this is Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt is a sprinter, and he came into the Olympics making some huge, huge claims about himself. He has said things like, I'm the greatest, I'm a legend, I will make history. He's not a shy guy. Now, if I made those types of claims about my sprinting ability, you would think I was crazy. You'd say, Darwin, I think you have more of a body type for slowly rolling down hills than being the fastest person in the world. But not for Bolt. Bolt won three golds in all three races that he entered this year. He has nine Olympic medals, nine in his life. He owns the world records for the one and 200 meter sprints. Sure, he made some huge claims about himself, claims that if anyone else were to say them, they would sound crazy, but he backed them up. The outcome proved that Bolt is who he said he is. He really is the fastest person in the world. But big claims haven't always gone so well for athletes. This is Matt Hasselback. In 2004, in the playoffs, Hasselback was in an overtime coin flip. He ran to the middle of the field where everyone could hear him loudly claim, we're going to get the ball and we're going to win. And then on his first throw of overtime, he threw an interception that was returned for a touchdown, and he lost his team the game. Not a good claim, right? In 2007, Wyoming head coach, football coach Joe Glenn made a claim that his team would beat their arch rival, Utah. He actually guaranteed that they would win right before they went out and lost by 50 points. (laughs) 50 points, that's not a little bit, right? That's a lot. So how do we know if claims are true or false? I mean, we could claim anything about ourselves, can't we? I could claim that I'm the world's greatest singer. It's not true. There's a reason they turn the microphone off during worship on me, but I could claim it. So how do we know if someone's claims about themselves are true or false? Well, a claim is proven or disproven in its outcome. Bolt proved in the outcome of his races that he really is the fastest person in the world, and others like Joe Glynn, well, not so much. Now, claiming to be the fastest man in the world is a tame claim to some of the things Jesus claimed about himself during his life and his ministry. He claimed to be God. John 10.30 tells us, I and the Father are one, to which the people responded in John 10.33, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Is there any bigger claim than a claim to be God? Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to forgive sin, to give eternal life. Jesus made huge, huge claims about himself. But just like winning or losing a race or a game can prove or disprove an athlete's claim, true or false, how do we know Jesus is who he claimed to be? Well, because he made a claim that was just as provable or disprovable as winning a 100 meter dash several times jesus claimed that he would die but then he would be resurrected from the dead this happens a number of times in the gospels but here's two examples luke 9:22 the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life And Matthew 17, 9, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. How do you know if a claim is true? The proof is in the outcome. And Jesus' claim to be resurrected had a very obvious outcome. His resurrection could prove he is who he claimed to be. And so today we come to the biblical story of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we're kind of looking at the whole chapter this morning, and there are four scenes in this chapter of John. And so we're going to begin by looking at the first. If you've got your Bible with me, you can turn to John chapter 20. If you don't, the verses will be up on the screen as we go along. So we start in verse 1 of John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary is coming to mourn Jesus the Sunday following the Friday in which he was crucified and buried. Now, if the John, the author, who's writing this for us, wanted to fabricate a story, if he's fabricating a story for us that isn't true, this is the very last way he'd start it, with a woman being the first witness to the resurrection. Unfortunately, in this day, women were not allowed to even testify in court. And so the only reason why he would start the story this way is if it was entirely true. Verse two, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Was Mary's first assumption that Jesus was resurrected? No, she assumes someone has soul in the body. So even though Jesus claimed several times during his ministry, Mary probably even heard at least one of them that he was gonna be resurrected, it doesn't seem that people actually expect it to happen after he died. They were not a group of superstitious people. And here we find out that there are two people headed to the tomb with Mary, Peter and John. John is the one writing this story down for us, and he often in his gospel refer to himself, not with his name, but with the title, the one whom Jesus. Verse three. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So there are three people that we, three characters, three people we have seen in this story so far. Mary, Peter, and John. And this is important because John is the one writing this story. We're not reading an account of Jesus' resurrection that was written by fifth or sixth hand information generations later. No, we're reading the first person eyewitness account of this event. Verse 5. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separated from the linen. Neatly folded fabric proves that this is not a scene of a body being hastily stolen because a thief wouldn't take the time to sit there and nicely fold out the fabric. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. What did John believe? It says, then he believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. So at the end of this first scene in John chapter 20, we're left with one thing, one truth that the tomb was empty, that Jesus has risen, that all those claims, all those huge, enormous claims that Jesus made during his life and during his ministry, they're true. Because Jesus' resurrection proves he is who he claimed to be If he was really resurrected, as John 20 tells us, then he really is who he said he is. He really is Savior and God. Jesus has proved he is who he claimed to be. And in the next scene, we see how we should then respond to this resurrection. In the second scene of John 20, we see that Mary Magdalene is crying next to the tomb. Angels visit her and she is still assuming that someone has stolen the body. Then Jesus appears, but she doesn't recognize him at first until he calls her name and she realizes it's him and that he has risen. And then we read in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. How does this follower of Jesus respond to the resurrection? What's her very first response? She tells others, I have seen the Lord. For his followers, the response, the proper response to his resurrection, to Jesus' resurrection, is to tell other people. That's where it starts, and that's where it started with Mary. Then we come to the third scene in John chapter 20. In verse 19, we find that the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. But then, suddenly Jesus is there, and we see this in John 20, 20 to 21. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I am sending you. What's the response of a follower of Jesus to his resurrection? To be sent to tell others the tomb is empty, to not keep the news to ourselves. And this is at the center of the very first Christian message. The eyewitnesses telling others that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. As Peter says in the very middle, the very crux of the very first Christian sermon ever given in Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. The response of Jesus' followers to his resurrection is to tell others. Just like Mary, every Christian has a personal responsibility to tell others about Christ. But we often mistakenly begin with the end. Too often, we begin to tell others about Jesus by telling them about the behaviors that God expects. And without the Holy Spirit, of course, they disagree. But what if we started with the resurrection? Every hope of the Christian life, every hope of salvation, every hope of knowing God rests on the belief that we have a resurrected, living, reigning Savior. What if faced, when faced with arguments of unbelievers that say, and I know we've all heard these, I can't believe in a God who? Blank. Instead of arguing for a moral or an idea, we'd argue for the resurrection. Because if the tomb is empty, then Jesus is Lord and the Holy Spirit is going to straighten out the rest. What if our witness to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family started not with what they must do, but with what Jesus has already done for them? He has defeated death. The tomb is empty. The response of Jesus' followers to his resurrection must be to tell others he has risen. Who will you tell? Next, we come to our fourth scene in this 20th chapter of John where we read this in verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is one of the disciples and he was a skeptic. He did not believe Jesus' resurrection before he saw it. He doubted Jesus' resurrection. And maybe you do too. So we read in verses 26 and 27, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, the one who doubted, is able to touch Jesus. Jesus is resurrected in his body. He's physically really resurrected. And he tells Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, Thomas doubted. So Thomas investigated. He needed proof. And if you're skeptical of Jesus' resurrection, I hope that that is your response, to investigate, to search it out, search out proof, because Jesus' resurrection is either the most wicked hoax of all time or it's the most amazing fact of all history, but it is not meaningless. Christianity is unique among the faiths of the world because it is rooted in historical events, Jesus' death and resurrection that can be factually investigated. And so, whether you're skeptical or you want to be able to talk with those who are, let's begin to investigate. Just like an athlete's claims are proved or disproved by the outcome, Jesus' claims to be God and Savior can be proved or disproved by whether he was really resurrected. So, how can we know if his resurrection really happened? To investigate this question, we have to start by asking, was the tomb empty? Not, not how, we'll get there, but was the tomb really empty? And the answer is yes, for a few different reasons. First, only days after Christ's death, the Christian church started in Jerusalem. Now, that was the same exact city in which Jesus was crucified and buried, If you had been one of the thousands in Jerusalem who became a Christian in those first few weeks following Jesus' death and resurrection, wouldn't you have taken the time just to walk a few miles to check out the tomb? If it wasn't empty, there never would have been Christianity. It was provable. Second, even the Jewish and Roman authorities who opposed Jesus did not refute that the tomb was empty. We read in Matthew 28 that they didn't say the tomb was empty. They they, they knew the tomb was empty, but claimed the body had been stolen. And while we read several times in both Jewish and Roman uh, historical documents about Jesus, they don't refute the fact that the tomb itself was empty, only how it became so. And third, the empty tomb was a central claim of the earliest Christians. If the tomb was not empty, we'd have to assume that the resurrection was a a later addition to the Christian faith. But instead, we see in the very first Christian writings and creeds, and even in non-Christian, unchristian documents about Christians, like the Roman historian Josephus, that this was one of the very first Christian beliefs, that Christians were rooted in the belief that Jesus really had been resurrected three days after his death. The tomb being empty is also the best and only logical explanation for the first Christians who were Jewish changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, the day of the resurrection. So yes, even as the majority of skeptical scholars would agree, The tomb really was empty. But then the next question is how did the tomb get empty? We know it was empty, but how did it become empty? There's only four possibilities. The first is that Jesus was never really dead, but somehow woke up in the tomb and escaped. Now, this just seems implausible. If there's one thing that Roman soldiers were really good at, and they were the ones who executed Jesus, if there's one thing that Roman soldiers were really good at, it was killing people. No one survived crucifixion. Whipping, followed by nails being put through your hands and feet, followed by suffocation for hours and a spear through your side is a sure recipe for death, not life. And had Jesus impossibly lived through it and woke up in the tomb, we have to assume that a nearly dead man was able to roll back a stone door that took multiple men to move, then overcome, beat up a group of Roman soldiers, professional soldiers who guarded the tomb knowing that failure would cost their lives, and then run away from the busiest city in the country to never be seen again. The second possibility is that Jesus' enemies stole the body. And this theory also doesn't work. In the weeks following Jesus' death, the Jewish and Roman authorities were angered as they watched thousands of people come to this Christian movement. We read this about about their anger in their their own historical documents. And so if they had possessed Jesus' body, if they had gone and taken it, all they needed to do to stop this movement was parade the body, through the streets of Jerusalem. And, well, we wouldn't be here 2,000 years later talking about it. Which brings us to our our third possibility, and that is that Jesus' followers stole the body. The argument that's been put forward by some goes like this, that after Jesus' death, his disciples wanted to keep his movement going. But because he had made it very clear that he was going to be resurrected, they stole the body and lied about the resurrection. Now, for the sake of the argument, we'll kind of skip over some functional problems like the thought of a group of fishermen defeating professional Roman soldiers, guarding the tomb with their lies. And instead we'll ask ourselves, what did the disciples have to gain from this lie? You only tell a lie if you have something to gain. So what could the disciples have gained? Well, they gained nothing and they lost everything. History is clear that 10 out of the 12 disciples died for their faith in Jesus. The Roman historian Josephus tells us that James, Jesus' brother, one of the first disciples, was stoned to death by the Roman Ananus. And in 90 and 195 AD, writers Clement of Rome and Tertullian tell us that Peter was killed in 64 AD by the Roman emperor Nero. And then by the third century, we see a a number of writers, such as Eusebius and Origen, discussing how 10 out of the 12 disciples all died for their faith, proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples led lives of pain, imprisonment, toil, and ultimately death. Had they been the ones to steal Jesus' body, they would have gone through all of that. They would have died for something they knew was a lie. No one dies for something they know is a lie. Furthermore, the resurrection's the best explanation for the change in their lives. To their own detriment, the disciples tell us in their writings in the New Testament that following Jesus's death and before his resurrection, they retreated, they denied Jesus. And then there's this enormous change in their lives. They go from denying to after the resurrection. Boldly dispersing across the known world to tell others about Christ. The change is best explained not by a lie, but by the truth of the resurrection. And so we find that it's implausible to think Jesus' followers stole the body. Which leaves us with our fourth option. The tomb was empty because Jesus really did resurrect from the dead this explanation is the most logical theory for the empty tomb it's the only possibility that makes sense of the authority's inability to produce the body the disciples willingness to die for their claim that jesus is god and savior and the growth of the christian church why was the tomb empty because jesus really did rise from the dead but why does this matter Well, because just like when an athlete makes a big claim, Jesus' claims can be proven or disproven by the outcome. Jesus' resurrection proves he is who he claims to be. In rising from the dead, Jesus proved he really is God. He really is the only way to God. He really does forgive sin. He really does give eternal life. The resurrection proves Jesus is who he claimed to be. Maybe you're skeptical of Christianity because you disagree with what it says about a particular area of morality or because you've struggled with the idea of the church or because you haven't liked how you've seen a particular Christian live or because you think it doesn't have any relevance to your life. If that's you, please, just like Thomas did, one of Jesus' own disciples, investigate the resurrection. The resurrection. Investigate the resurrection. Decide what you think about the resurrection before you decide about the rest of it. Because if Jesus really was raised from the dead, if that tomb really was empty, then he's proven his claims to be true. He really is God. He really is Savior. And our opinions about all those other things will be forgotten as we begin to follow him. Jesus' resurrection proves he is who he claimed to be. The tomb is empty. He is Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for rising again to show us who you truly are, Lord. We pray for those of us who, who do follow you that we would take this just as a personal responsibility to go and tell others that the tomb is empty, you have risen, you are Lord, you are God, you are Savior. For those of us who aren't sure, I pray, Lord, I just pray that, that those of us who, who just aren't sure, who doubt, like Thomas did, that you would help us investigate your resurrection and see you for who you truly are. We love you. In your name we pray, amen.